0: Well, we're continuing our teaching through the book of Acts. We're in Acts 16. We're going to finish the 16th chapter. And I've entitled the message, Stop, Don't Do It. So out of respect and love for God's word, stand to your feet. We'll be reading out of Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 21. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself. But Paul shouted to him, Stop! Stop! Don't kill yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights and ran to the dungeon and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought, he brought them out and said, and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and with all who lived in his household. Even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. The next morning, the city officials sent the police to tell the jailer, let those men go. So the jailer told Paul, the city officials have said, you and Silas are free to leave. Go in peace. But Paul replied, they have publicly beaten us without a trial and put us in prison, and we are Roman citizens? So now, they want, to, they want us to leave secretly? Certainly not. Let them come themselves to release us. When the police reported this, the city officials were alarmed to learn that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. So they came to the jail and apologized to them. Then they brought them out and begged them to leave the city. When Paul and Silas left the prison, they returned to the home of Lydia. There they met with the believers and encouraged them once more. Then they left town. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this amazing story. Thank you for the ministry and the impact of Paul and his ministry team. Thank you for what it means to us today. Thank you for the spiritual truths that you will share with us today. May we have hearts to receive, ears to hear the engrafted word. The incorruptible seed of the word of God will be planted in our spirits today, Lord. It will prosper wherein you have sent it. It will not return back to you void. And Father, I thank you that it will bear some 30, some 60, some 100 fruit. Multiplication, I pray and ask this now in Jesus' name, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, you may be seated. Stop. Don't do it. Once again, in this uh, story, we see that Paul cheated death. Thank God for Lydia. She was a a gift from heaven for Paul and his ministry team, as we talked about her on Mother's Day Uh, this past month. Paul and his ministry team were staying in Lydia's home. She was a wealthy businesswoman. She had enough room to house everybody, to feed everybody. God wants you to be blessed so you can be a blessing. Paul, in this chapter, in these verses, he asserted his legal rights. Uh, The city officials were surprised at Paul and Silas. They thought they were just Jews that had less rights than everybody else in that day. And when they found out they were Roman citizens, they were alarmed because you could not beat and imprison falsely a Roman citizen. There were laws. Paul asserted his, his legal rights. He asserted his Roman citizenship. There are times when it is your moral and spiritual obligation to assert your legal rights as a citizen, of the United States of America, and ultimately our rights do not come from the government. They're bestowed by our Creator. Uh, Even as during the Civil Rights Movement, uh, no other human being should be treated differently solely by the color of their skin, so our fellow Americans had to assert themselves in order to uh, acquire the legal status that all Americans deserve, for we're all created equal in the eyes of God Almighty. Amen. The greatest outcome of this story was, verse 31, Paul said, "When the guy said, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. His household was saved, not automatically because he was saved. They all heard the gospel. They all believed in Jesus, and they all accepted Christ as Lord and Savior, and then immediately, not the next day, not the next week, immediately they were water baptized. They made a public profession of their faith in Christ. Paul at midnight was singing and praying, and Silas, when all of this happened, this is probably two or three in the morning, it was an all-nighter. They ate, they feasted, they rejoiced, and the next day they were permanently set free. But my main point is found in verse 28. In verse 28, once again, it says, Paul shouted to him, stop, don't kill yourself, we're all here. I want to talk about uh, the 10th leading cause of death in the United States of America, and it happens to be suicide for all ages. Suicide is a topic that is addressed in the Bible because the Bible does not shy away from the painful, tough issues of life. You know, every day, 123 Americans take their life by way of suicide. Every 12 minutes in America, someone takes their life. By the end of this message today, three of our fellow Americans will have ended their life by way of suicide. That's my friend, is unacceptable. Depression affects 20 to 25% of Americans 18 years and older, and now depression is being diagnosed in young people as young as the age of 15. Suicide takes the lives of 44,965 fellow Americans every year. Think of all the sacred lives that, have been, that were lost during the Vietnam War. 58,220 Americans died in the Vietnam War, in the entirety of that war. But every year, 44,965 precious souls leave this world before their time by way of suicide. The highest suicide rates in the U.S. are among whites, American Indians, and Alaska Natives for uh, whatever reason. Now, in the Bible, there are seven suicides that are mentioned in the Scriptures. The first one is a guy by the name of Abimelech. He was the king. He was wounded in battle by a woman throwing a millstone on his head. He didn't want, to be, uh, didn't want to go down being known that he was killed by a woman in war, so he asked his armor bearer to thrust him through with a sword, and he died. Samson, some say his death was a martyrdom, but uh, he asked the Lord, let me die with my enemies as he pushed apart the two pillars, and 3,000 died in that moment, and Sam- Samson died with the enemy you might say, in battle as a a martyr. King Saul uh, was wounded in battle, didn't want to be captured and tortured and mistreated, so he asked his armor-bearer to thrust him through. His armor-bearer refused to, so King Saul fell on his sword and died. When his armor-bearer found out, they saw that the king was killed, he himself killed himself. Another guy, Ahithophel, was a counselor to King David during the rebellion of David's son Absalom. Ahithophel was for Absalom. He gave advice to Absalom on how to destroy his father and his men. God supernaturally intervened and overturned the council of Ahithophel. And the Bible says when he realized his counsel was rejected, he went to his house, put his house in order, and then he hung himself. The sixth person mentioned in the Bible is another king of the northern uh, tribes of Israel, a bad king, Zimri, was defeated in battle. Uh, He knew he was going to be captured, so he burnt the palace down with himself in it. And then possibly the most famous suicide in the Bible was Judas, who betrayed the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, and then he went out and hung himself. Now, it's hard to believe. In 4,000 years of biblical history, there are only seven recorded suicides in the Bible. Five of the seven suicides were within the context of the field of battle. And instead of being captured, though they were wounded, uh, they chose to end their life. Two were outside the field of battle, Ahithophel and Judas. There were individuals in the Bible that wanted to die. Elijah sought the Lord that he would die, and God said, no, it's not your time. Jonah even asked the Lord to take his life, and God said, no. The reason being is because God is the giver of life, and only God can take that life. Now, what's interesting to me is the biblical narrators that tell the stories of these individuals over 4,000 years of biblical history that took their lives, they don't share their opinion. They simply state what happened and without trying to interpret or influence one way or the other, which I find to be quite interesting. Here's what we need to know, and here's what you need to know, especially you young people suicide is a permanent decision to a temporary problem. No matter what you're facing in your life, no matter what you will ever face in your life, it's temporary. The pain will not last. And yet, when young people take their life, it's a permanent decision based on a temporary pain. When I was in high school, I, my senior year, I committed my life to Christ. I had a friend, a close friend, that uh, committed suicide that same year. And we were all shocked, and we, we were all heartbroken. His parents, uh, his family asked if I would sh- share something at his funeral. I had recently given my life to Christ. I knew him, he was a personal friend. And it was, uh, it was a sad moment in all of our lives, but particularly in the life of the family. You see, suicide doesn't end your pain. It simply passes it on to everyone else that loves you. And he took his life, he was good looking, athletic, he had a promising future over a relationship that ended. He broke up with his girlfriend. How many times do we allow the enemy to sow seeds of doubt and lies in our hearts and then we act on it? We make a permanent decision based on a temporary pain. I know there are those in here in our services this weekend, perhaps you've contemplated it. Maybe you've even attempted it. No shame, no guilt, no condemnation. We love you. We don't know who you are, but the Lord knows who you are. And thank God you didn't succeed because your life matters to him. And it matters to so many others, even if at times it may not feel that way. I know there will be family members in here who have had loved ones that have taken their life. I'm sorry. My heart goes out to you. We have people in our life, friends, extended family members, that we are touched with that feeling of that infirmity in your life. And uh, we, we can only say may God's love and grace continue to, to give you strength. But there are three thoughts that I wanna share with you, because everyone that has taken their life, they, prior to taking their life, there's a feeling of uselessness and hopelessness. Many times it's brought on by mental illness. I'm so thankful for Rick Warren, he and his wife, they, are very transparent with the pain that they have been walking through in the untimely suicide of their own son. Many other nationally known good men, good families, good people have been transparent and have shared their pain and how they have been coping with that pain in light of this horrendous issue that we're facing. Three thoughts I want to share with you. The first one is this. My life isn't a waste because God created it. Let's say this together. My life isn't a waste because God created it. Some people think, what's the use? My life is meaningless. My life has no purpose. On the contrary, your life is not a waste because God created you. Look at Job 33.4. Let's read this out loud together. Job 33.4. The Spirit of God created me, and the breath of the Almighty gave me life. God created you in His image and in His likeness. You see, God's the giver of life, therefore only God can extinguish life. The only exception to that is in a just war or in self-defense. Now, remember, the Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not kill. It says, thou shalt not murder. God is against the shedding of innocent blood. There are times a life has to be taken in war or in self-defense or in capital punishment, which the Bible does confirm in capital punishment. But life should never be extinguished outside those exceptions. Why? Because it is special, created by God. We are image bearers of God. So, if homicide is the deliberate, unlawful killing of another human being, infanticide is the killing of a child, suicide is the action of killing oneself intentionally. Your life isn't a waste because God created you. Look at Ephesians 2.10, the first part of that verse. Can we read it out loud together? We are God's work of art created in Christ Jesus. One translation says, you are God's masterpiece, and he's not finished with this Work of art called your life. That's why we should never give up. We should never throw in the towel because God's begun a good work in you and he's going to complete it because you were created in his image and in his likeness. You are an image bearer of almighty God. Look at Psalm 139 verse 14. Can we read it out loud together? I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. The greatest, most marvelous work that God has performed in all of creation, it's not the earth or the galaxies or the universes. It's not the angels, and God bless the angels, the holy messengers of God. It's you, my friend. It's you and it's me, because only human beings were created in the very image and in the very likeness of God. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. Albert Camus was a French philosopher, author, journalist. He won the Nobel Prize at the age of 44 in 1957. He wrote an essay on the myth of uh, Sisyphus. And it's an interesting essay, because he introduces the philosophy of the absurd, And basically, in his essay, he he says, life is really meaningless if you think about it. There's no unity, there's no clarity, there's no no purpose. It's as though it's devoid of God and of eternal truths and of value. And because life is so absurd, and because life is so cruel, and because life is so meaningless, does it then necessitate and require suicide? An interesting essay. He says, we hope for tomorrow, but tomorrow brings us closer to death. What's the use? The world is cruel. It is inhumane. Hence, the meaningless and the absurdity of life. Does it require us ending it all? Then he answers that question in the essay. At the end of it, he says, no, (laughs) it requires revolt. In the final chapter, he compares the absurdity of man's life with the situation of Uh, Sisyphus, and he was the guy, the Greek mythology guy that had to roll a stone uh, uh, up, up a hill, only once he got it up the hill, it came tumbling down again. And sometimes life feels as though we're just pushing against life and the burden of life. And no sooner do we feel as though we've reached the top and we let go that the stone rolls back down again and we have to get back up and do it all over again. And then he concludes the essay by saying this, The struggle itself is enough to fill a man's heart. The struggle itself. There's nobility in the struggle itself. There's honor in the struggle itself. Whatever the struggle may be, sickness or disease or death or divorce or personal failure, or setback after setback, the fact that you were created by God, that you are placed on this earth for a divine purpose, plan, and destiny, you and I never have the right to throw in the towel, to quit, and to give up, because there's glory in the struggle, in the suffering, (laughs) because of who you are. Now, I need somebody to help me out. I I need somebody real quickly. uh, Anybody have a $100 bill on them? A $100 bill You have a hundred-dollar bill, Dr. Joe. You got a hundred. Okay, bring it up. Bring it up. <laughs> yeah, I know hundreds don't show up to church that often. One-dollar bills usually, and they end up in the offering, right? Anybody got a? Okay, can you bring it up real quick? Oh, you got. Okay, your son had it. Thank you, Jeffrey. All right, now we know who has the money. <laughs> All right. So, I may or may not give it back. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, no, I will. Okay. This $100 bill, this has value. Why, why does this $100 bill have value? Because the US government created it, and the US government has, has, has determined the value of this $100 bill. So, this $100 bill has intrinsic value, meaning it's worth something. Matter of fact, did you know uh, if you happen to have enough money to burn, congratulations. Uh, but you better think twice because burning money is still a federal offense. Uh, if I lit this money on fire, I could spend 10 years in prison for defacing, devaluing this currency. It has intrinsic value, but it doesn't have extrinsic value. I mean, it's just paper. That's not, this paper's not worth very much. You know, when it comes to your life, you not only have intrinsic value, you are created in the image and likeness of God. You have extrinsic value. You see, I could crumble this $100 bill up. It's still going to be worth $100. That's the value set by the federal government. I could, I could put this $100 bill in the mud and, and some water, and it could be caked on with mud. And a matter of fact, they say all $100 bills have traces of cocaine on it, so I'm going to really wash my hands after I've touched this $100 bill, and you should wash your hands after you touch any bills. Who knows where this $100 bill is circulating where it's been? You know what I'm talking about? Um, but in spite of all that, this still holds its intrinsic value. No matter where your life is at today, no matter what sin you may be involved in today, no matter how the image of God has been marred in your life by the filth and the muck and the mire and the stain of sin, you still have value in the eyes of God intrinsically because you were created in His image and in His likeness. Now, your extrinsic value, how much… We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? You know, uh, you're worth about 160 dollars if you take all of the, the chemical components that make up your corpse. But 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 uh, if we sold you, if we put you in a chop shop and we sold your organs off, we could probably get about 45 million for you. So you have extrinsic value, right? Your body. So let's let's ask let me ask you this question: How much would you give me for your right arm? I got 100 bucks right now. Would you cut off your right arm and give me for 100 bucks? <laughs> It's not even mine. That's real cheap, right? No, no. Okay. How about 500 bucks? Would you give me your right arm? for Anybody? For 500 bucks, give me your right arm. Okay. Uh, how about 100,000? Any takers? No. How much are you worth? How much is your right arm worth? How about a million dollars? Let me pray about it. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. How much would you give me for your liver? How much would you give me for your kidney? Now, if I had if I had kidney failure, I know because you love me, at least one of you would donate a kidney to me. I I thank you in advance for that. Hopefully I don't have to test that love. Amen. You see, how can you put a price on yourself? Jesus said, What profits a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? What can a man give in exchange for his soul? You are so valuable to God, the only way God could buy you back, the only way God could redeem you was by sending His only begotten Son who died on a cross 2,000 years ago so that your soul could be purchased back by God to spend (laughs) eternity with Him. You have value, not because of what you look like on the outside. You, ladies, you're valuable not because, you know, you, you have a supermodel, uh, supermodel figure, right? Guys, you're, you're not valuable because, you know, you're 6'2", 185 of lean muscle. That ain't me, and that's not most of you, right? You're, you're not valuable because you can grow a beard. If growing a beard made you valuable, I'm not very valuable because I can't grow a beard. I'm ashamed of that. I couldn't be an Old Testament Jew. I couldn't go in the temple if I couldn't grow a beard. I can grow a mustache, but so my wife said, no, shave it off. We did, tried it on vacation one time. She said, you look like Mario in Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> so, so your life has value both intrinsically and extrinsically. My life isn't a waste because God created it. My second thought is this. My life can be Wonderful if I give God control of it. Let's say that out loud together. My life can be wonderful if I give God control of it. You see, the key is who's in control. As you and I? If you and I strive to be in control of our life, it's the absurdity of life, the meaningless of life. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, if you and I only live for that which is, listen to me, under the sun, instead of living for that which is above the sun, heaven and eternity. It's like chasing wind and grasping oil. There is utter meaningless to this life. Yeah, why not believe you came from an animal, so therefore act like an animal? If, if you don't believe in God, then there's no meaning. Nihilism, nihilism is, is the, 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 the mode of the day, the thought of the day, the philosophy of the day. Live today, die tomorrow, so between living and dying, eat, drink, and be merry, for there's no purpose, there's no meaning to life. Oh, but there is, my friend, because you were created by God, and there's meaning to life, and your life can be wonderful. It may not be wonderful. It may not have been wonderful growing up, but it can be wonderful today. It can be wonderful tomorrow if you and I will give God control of our lives. I believe that. Job 25, 2. Let's read it out loud together. God is the one to fear because God is in control and rules the heavens. You say, if God's in control, He sure has things a mess. No, we have things a mess. He made us as free moral agents. And Our choices have consequences, and we can choose to disobey God. We can choose to inflict injury on ourselves. We can choose to inflict injury on others, and only in rare occasions will God intervene when it it challenges, when it potentially can alter the ultimate destiny and plan of God for the earth. But your life can be wonderful if you get God control of it. I love one of the greatest verses in the Bible, Isaiah 61.3. Let's read it out loud together. To console those who mourn in Zion... To give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Wow. Isaiah said this at the end of his sermon, at the end of his book, at the end of his prophecy. There was so much pain and heartache, and there was God's judgment because of sin and rebellion. But in spite of all the pain and the sorrow and the nation of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of, the, the, the kingdom of Israel being of Judah, the southern kings being sent into captivity, God said there's still hope. There was the burnt remains of God's judgment upon a nation. And yet Isaiah, the Spirit of God through Isaiah said there can be beauty for ashes. Maybe there's a lot of ashes in your life right now. Maybe in your past it's filled with ashes, debris of the pain and the sorrow, but you made it. You're here, you're here now. That was then, this is now. God can give you beauty. He can resurrect from those ashes something beautiful. As Joseph said to his brothers who betrayed him, sold him as a slave into, into Egypt as, as, as a slave, he said, you, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. Richard Buckminster Fuller, who was an American architect systems theorist, an author, designer, inventor, futurist. He, he published like 30 books. In 1927, the bottom fell out from under him. He uh, was the president of a company. He lost his job. Five years earlier, his daughter died of polio. He blamed himself because he couldn't provide enough for his family during that period of time to keep the house warm. He went to drinking and became an alcoholic. And he seriously considered taking his life. One day he was walking out in front of Lake Michigan. He found a spot. He said, here's where I could do it. He was about to jump when, according to his own testimony, he heard a voice. Felt as he was engulfed in a white light, suspended in the air. And here's what he heard the voice say. From now on, you need never await temporal attestation to your thought. You think the truth. You do not have the right to eliminate yourself. You do not belong to you. Your significance will remain forever obscure to you. But... You may assume that you are fulfilling your role if you apply yourself to converting your experiences to the highest advantage of others. He said that that voice was the voice of the universe. He didn't know at that point in time there is no voice of the universe, but there is a voice of God that can intervene and can remind you you are valuable. And there's nobility in the struggle. He went back home, he regained his bearings, and made a great success out of his life. My life isn't a waste because God created it. My life can be wonderful if I give God control of it. And finally, my life is worth living because God can change it. Let's say that together. My life is worth living because God can change it. Only God can change a life, and he can change your life. In 2 Corinthians five seventeen, it says, Therefore, oh, got to take it off. All right, here we go. Let's say, read it out loud together. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The jailer that night when God supernaturally sent an earthquake and the chains fell off all the prisoners, that jailer that night was going to kill himself, and Paul said, stop, don't do it. We're all here. That's God's message to you. Those of you that are watching right now, stop, don't do it. We're all here. We're here for you. More importantly, God is here for you, and God is in the relocation business. God can change your life. He can change your address emotionally, intellectually, spiritually, even physically. You know, 40 million Americans move at least one time in a given year. How I mean, you know moving one time in a given lifetime is way too much? <laughs> much less every year, right? 40 million Americans. Will move at least one time this year. God is in the relocation business. You see, if you're living on Dead End Street right off the Devil's Highway on the corner of Guyana and Hades, it's time to change the addresses. Get off the highway to hell with no stop sign speed limit. Nobody's going to slow you down like a wheel spinning. Nobody's going to mess you around. It's time to get off that highway of hell and get on the highway of heaven. How do I get on that? Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And he offers life. And he'll give you beauty for ashes. In the book of Exodus, God changed the address of one million plus Jews, his people. 400 plus years of bondage, God relocated them. And where did God relocate them? From one place of bondage to another place of bondage? No, he took them out of Egypt, a place of bondage, and he brought them into the promised land. And what did he call the promised land? A land flowing with milk and honey. My friend, God has a land for you that is flowing with milk and honey. God has a better tomorrow. He has a better year. Everything that God has for you is up ahead. Let him be in control of your life and follow him. Follow him, and he can change your life. How does God change your life? Jeremiah 31:15. Time after time I sent you prophets who told you, turn from your wicked ways and start doing things right. Stop worshiping other gods so that you might live in peace here in the land that I've given to you and your ancestors. But you would not listen to me or obey me that's all God is asking from us his image bearers he's asking us to turn to him and he will receive us he will forgive us and he will give us peace but we must listen to him we must obey him there's a Swedish proverb shared joy is a double joy shared sorrow is a half sorrow If you're contemplating suicide those of you watching you need to talk with someone as a church of course we're here for you I'm sure you have friends and family members if you live in another city I'm sure there is a a good bible preaching church there that you could call up and somebody would be willing to talk with you to pray with you A, a shared joy is a double joy a shared sorrow is half a sorrow stop don't do it we're here We're all here, and we're all here for you, my friend. Suicide is not to fear death. It is to fear life. It doesn't take courage to take your life. It takes more courage to live through the struggle of life, whatever that struggle may be, whether it is a legitimate mental condition, a mental illness, just like there could be a physical illness and you could be a Christian that loves Jesus and suffer physically, some of you Or believe me, God, for healing through diabetes or or, or some other disease right now, you still love God and heaven's your eternal home. You have a physical illness. You could have a mental illness. God still loves you. He's still there for you. He's still with you every single day, every step you take. You never take it alone. He's there with you. But never give up. Jesus changed addresses. (laughs) He left heaven to come to the sin-cursed world to die on a cross for you. You've heard it before, right? If you're the only one living, the only one that needed salvation, you're worth that much to God. You're worth that much to the Savior that he would have come to this earth, suffered, bled, and died for you. That's how important you are to him. There's a national suicide hotline I want to give it to you. It's in the notes. You can download them from the app or on our website. 1-800-273-TALK or 8255 247 As a church, we're here for you, absolutely. We don't have a 24-7, seven-day-a-week hotline, but we are here for you. But there is someone that is willing to talk with you and help you through those low moments you may find yourself. Don't face them alone. There are others. In the psychological world, there's a a new concept called post-traumatic growth that people that face great traumatic events in their life, they're finding that they can actually have a better life post the trauma. It can be a moment of their personal growth and development. True story. Brigadier General Rhonda Cornham, a female Brigadier General. She's the poster child of post-traumatic growth. 1991, She was a prisoner of war in the Iraqi war under Saddam Hussein's army. She was a medical doctor, urologist. She was a PhD biochemist. She was a flight surgeon. She was a jet pilot and a civilian helicopter pilot. She was running a rescue mission when she was shot down. She had like two broken legs, a broken arm, broken ribs. Captured for eight days, brutally raped for eight days. Then she was rescued. Upon her release and upon her recovery and upon the lesson that she learned from that, she decided to become a better person. She describes the effects of her traumatic experience related to her patients. She said, I felt much better prepared to be a military physician and a surgeon than I was previously to this experience because now the concerns of my patients were no longer academic. Related to her personal strength, she said, in her own words, I felt far better equipped to be a leader and a commander. That is the standard by which other experiences are now based. I so, and so I feel much less anxiety or fear when faced with challenges. She said, I remember birthdays now and I visit my grandparents and so on. She got this new lease on life and she had a new value and appreciation for life. As I mentioned during worship, the end of worship, sometimes we can begin to become so conditioned to the good things in life, we begin to take them for granted. Spiritually, she said it changed her. In her own words, she said, this an out-of-body experience changed my perception. I was now open to at least the possibility of a spiritual versus just a physical life. Her priorities changed. She coined the greatest, one of the greatest philosophies of life, like they asked her one time, "What's your philosophy in life?" And she said, "I prioritize A, B, and C, and then I dispense of C." And she reprioritized her life. She said, "I always go to my daughter's soccer games now." And this is from a book called *Flourish: A Visionary New Understanding of Happiness and Well-Being* that I've been been reading. No matter where you've been, no matter what you're facing, young people no matter what pain or hardship your life is experiencing right now, this too shall pass. And the devil attacks those so viciously that have such a promising future. It can almost be a compliment to your life. If you have struggled with suicide, it's because the devil knows there's something significant about your life. Please understand that. Even when I was a teenager, before I gave my life to Christ, in the dark moments of my life, my soul was filled with such darkness and sin. I, on many occasions, seriously thought about ending it all. But God intervened, and I came to the realization that my life is not a waste that my life can be wonderful that God has a plan for my life and I'm here to tell you God has a plan for your life and we have no right to cut it short The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in all points like you and me and yet he's without sin you know one time the devil tempted Jesus to end his life prematurely. Did you know that? He said, throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Isn't it written? Psalm 91 he quoted, because the devil knows the scripture better than you do and I do. He'll give his angels charge over you. They'll bear you up in their hands lest you dash your foot against the stone. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Pastor Carl, if, if a Christian takes their life, do they go to heaven? Well, the only way you go to heaven is by being born again. That's, that's the one issue that needs to be settled. Only people that are born again go to heaven. You can be sick in your body, die and go to heaven. You can be sick in your head, die and go to heaven. People who trust Jesus go to heaven, but you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Let me share this very delicately. There's the Protestant and the Catholic theological interpretation of suicide. The Catholic Church, and their theology, they believe it's a mortal sin that if you commit suicide you don't go to heaven. You know that saved a lot of people's lives, that has. I have an individual in my life that I, I know and has, have attempted to commit suicide and, and didn't go through with it, thank the Lord, and they seriously thought about it and what saved them, what saved them was their fear of not going to heaven. They want to see their mother, they want to see their grandmother, and they know if they end their life they won't go to heaven. The scripture doesn't say one way or the other. I can only trust in my understanding of scripture that uh, God is good and what gets you to heaven is faith alone and Christ alone being saved. Many times in the Protestant world it's as though we give license to people who are in the struggle and think well God loves me, God understands and I'm going to, listen, Jesus said, base your life on what Jesus said, don't tempt God it's never our right to take our own life in our hands your life was given to you by God and your life can only be extinguished by God which means there's always hope no matter what you may be facing in your life every head bowed every eye closed Father I pray right now by the power of the Holy Spirit that the lies of the enemy the devil comes to steal, kill and destroy I break the power of of Satan's spell over families, over the hearts of men and women, and particularly particularly teenagers in Jesus' name, that that thought would never cross their mind in Jesus' name. Those that have been struggling, Lord, thank you that they're going to follow Christ. He's the way, the truth, and the life against the lies of the enemy. And those who have had loved ones that have taken their lives Comfort them, continue to strengthen them, and continue to help them to become an advocate for life, for they have been touched with the feeling of pain that so many fellow Americans are touched with. Thank you for your grace and mercy being extended now today, Lord. Those that are watching and listening, live streaming right now, reach out, Holy Spirit, and touch them in Jesus' name. Now, heads bowed and eyes closed if you're here today and you don't know Christ is your Lord and Savior, you need to rededicate your life to Christ. I'm gonna ask you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us, say it with your own mouth, mean it from your own heart, here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, come into my heart, come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God. I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit and give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, Amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?